like to uh, take a seat. This uh, passage uh, from Corinthians that Gloria read for us uh, has to be one of the most familiar and uh, most loved passages of the Bible. It's a firm favourite at weddings and before the service started, uh, Gloria was telling me how pleased she was to be reading it this morning as she read it at her daughter's wedding. It's beautiful writing. It's been described as a eulogy to love. Uh, sometimes when uh, I meet with wedding couples and we're choosing uh, readings, somebody will say, well, we quite like that, that reading about love. We don't know what it's, where it's from, but about love never fails. And, you know, is it from Shakespeare? Is it from Hamlet? No, uh, it's from the Bible. This beautiful, uh, poetic uh, exposition of love comes from a very practical letter. A letter that Paul is writing to the church uh, in Corinth. As I mentioned, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. As I mentioned uh, last week, uh, Corinth was host to the Corinthian Games, the antecedents of our modern Olympic Games. It was cosmopolitan and diverse. At the church. <coughs> The church in Corinth reflected the city in all its diversity. Rich and poor worshipped together. Merchants and slaves joined together in song. Those from the top tier of society and those from the bottom met together for communion. Jews and Greeks together. New converts who knew very little about the faith and seasoned believers. Just as the city of Corinth was a melting pot, so too was the church. And in all this mix, there was one added complication. The city of Corinth was dominated by a large hill behind it, 500 metres high. It was flat-topped and it was known as the Acherinth. It was the site of a great temple, famous in the ancient world a temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was host to a, a cult of sacred prostitutes who entertained the many uh, sailors who visited uh, the, the port of Corinth. As is their nature, many of those sailors would visit uh, the temple prostitutes for worship. Paul writes to the church in this city and he writes to them to say to them, look, you think you know what love is, but let me expound its nature to you. You think you have this figured out, but let me explain once again what love is all about. Let me help you get your thinking straight. Let me help you get the way that you live out your faith straight too. His lessons are relevant for us uh, here at St. Giles. Three reasons, I think, why they're relevant for us today. The first is this, that love is one of the central, if not the central theme of the Bible. 
The Apostle John, writing to the churches for whom he has responsibility, reminds them, God is love. His very nature is love. At the core of who God is, is love. They shouldn't need a reminding of that, but they did. We shouldn't need reminding of this, but we do. What did Jesus say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And if uh, the Corinthians had uh, wrong ideas about love, uh, formed by their culture where uh, Aphrodite was exalted, and I'd suggest we have many wrong ideas about love too, formed not by uh, worship in the temple of Aphrodite, but by our modern culture. Ideas that have been formed through TV and Hollywood, through uh, glossy uh, magazines. We have two distorted images of what love is and what it means to live a life of love. A friend of mine was uh, a teacher uh, for several years in Kuwait, uh, as you know, a very conservative uh, Muslim uh, culture. He was there as a, a, a teacher in an international school, and he was a Christian. He told me about one lesson where he gave the young people the chance to ask, well, what would you like to uh, learn about? What should we do today? And they responded, tell us about love. Tell us about love in your culture. And as we, they got into uh, the discussion, he realized that what they were asking about was not so much love, but romance and seduction. They're not the only ones who confuse romance with love. Not the only ones who confuse sex with love. And thirdly, we have the commands of Jesus. Jesus said this, my command is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. We can't pick and choose which commands of Jesus we will follow. Following Christ is not like uh, choosing your subjects for A-level in the sixth form. I like history, I like English, but physics is too hard, so we'll leave that on the side. I like the stuff about Jesus being with us forever. I like the stuff about taking on his yoke and following him. But that stuff about laying down your life for your friends, I'll leave that to one side. My command is this, says Jesus that you love one another as I have loved you. And just to ram the point home, he goes on, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So in our passage uh, from Corinthians, Paul uh, spells out in beautiful, uh, poetic, yet practical terms, exactly what uh, love is. Uh, sorry to me, you turn the microphone down just a little bit. He shows us what love is, what it looks like, that we might get our heads uh, straight. 
that we might have a full apprehension of what it live, means to, look, to live a life of love. And in describing the qualities of love, he's describing the nature of God. We could read that reading again, and uh, in every sentence where it says love, substitute the word uh, Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus never fails. I have this time this morning to go through the whole passage and every dimension and every attribute of love, but we can cluster a few of these themes together. Love is patient. Love is not easily angered. Literally, love suffers long. How is your patience? None of us like delays in our plans. We all have a strong desire for a trouble-free life. How are you when the internet is down at home? When the server has crashed at work? How did you react when the banks got in a mess the other week and you couldn't uh, check your account? You weren't sure if the standing orders had gone through. What are you like when baby won't settle down? How do you respond when that guest just won't leave? When there's no sign of the traffic jam ever moving on? When the letter, the email, the parcel, the check has been delayed? Even the sweetest, gentlest people can turn into monsters when their routines are disruptive. Paul writes, Love is patient. Love is not easily angered. So what happens to that part of us that has a short fuse, that is easily provoked, that complains and bullies when things don't go our way? What must happen to that part of us that gets critical and grouchy and angry when we're delayed? Scripture teaches us that it must die. If we're to be faithful followers of Jesus, if we are to love as he loves us, this part of us must die. This is part and parcel of what the Bible calls dying to self. What did Jesus say? Whoever would follow him must take up their cross daily and walk with him. One writer puts it like this. To love like this is to die. If I'm to be like Christ, if I'm to be patient, if I'm to be long-suffering, if I'm to be not easily angered, something in me must die. My strong craving for a trouble-free life must die. My need for an uninterrupted schedule must die. My insistence that frustrations and interference must just get out of my way must die. The truth is, we simply cannot love the way Jesus calls us to, the way Paul describes, until we die to self. Love is patient, 
Love is not self-seeking. Love does not boast. All of us like to be admired. All of us want others to think well of us. We might not all like to be the centre of attention, but we all like to be liked. We all love to be loved. Each of us, I'm sure, in different times and at different circumstances, adopt uh, subtle strategies for maximising our successes and minimising our failures. Some of us are quite unsubtle in how we do this. We constantly put ourselves at the centre of things. We make every conversation about us and our achievements. Others are much more subtle. We just gently bring the conversation round to us. To what we have achieved. The contribution that we made. Sometimes we do this boastfully. Sometimes we do this with an air of self-pity. Talk not so much about what we've done, but how we have been wronged. We talk not so much about how we've been the victor, but how we've been the victim. This too can be a very subtle form of pride. When I was a a teenager, older teens, uh, 17, 18, uh, one of the things that we uh, used to love to do, a group of lads, uh, was go driving in the car. Uh, We were so sad, we didn't have anywhere to drive to. Uh, We didn't have anybody to meet driving. We just drove around. Uh, in a friend's dad's white Ford Fiesta. Uh, We looked incredibly cool. You had to have uh, seen it. And we just drive and drive and drive. And a couple of us had driving licenses. A couple of us uh, didn't. But there was was one person, uh, a friend of mine uh, called Mike, who was a nightmare to have in the passenger seat at the front when we were driving around. Because we weren't particularly uh, confident drivers. And although we used to think of ourselves as boy racers, we'd actually just kind of pootle round uh, the local lanes. And as we were driving along, uh, occasionally uh, a car would overtake us. Sometimes embarrassingly, a tractor would overtake (laughs) us. And each time this happened, uh, my friend Mike in the passenger seat would turn to whoever was driving and would count off how many times we had been overtaken that evening. A car would go by. That's one, he would say. Half an hour later, another car would overtake us. That's two, he would say. And as the evening went on, every time we were overtaken, he would reel off uh, the number of times we had been humiliated by being overtaken. Some of us have an air of self-pity. We reel off the times that we have been wronged. We reel off time and time again Uh, the scorecard of how many times we've been overtaken in life. Hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we can't rejoice in our triumphs. I'm not saying uh, we can't share our troubles and our trials. I'm not saying we can never celebrate when things go well, or equally we can never share when things are going badly saying that to be loving is to not be boastful 
to be loving is not to be self-seeking or self-pitying. Jesus is quite clear. We should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There is a line, there's a boundary, and we're not always aware of when uh, we cross it. Love, Paul writes, doesn't insist upon its own way. So what do we do if we recognise these traits within us? What's uh, the answer? And the answer again is that we must die to self. This part of us that always wants to put ourselves at the centre of the stage, that always wants to have our own way, that's always self-seeking or self-pitying, must die. What did Jesus say as he modelled discipleship for us? I must decrease and he must increase. To follow the example of Jesus, who came not to be served, not to put himself at the centre, but to serve and give his offering as a ransom, a payment for many. But how do we do that? How do we die to self? How do we put Christ at the centre? How do we change that we become uh, more loving, more like Jesus, more like the one whom we're called to follow? In many ways, I think the answer you've shown by turning up this morning, by coming uh, to worship. Writers on the spiritual life have long observed that we have a tendency to resemble that which we revere. That we tend to come to resemble that which we revere. Tom Wright uh, puts it like this. This is the golden rule at the heart of spirituality. You become like that which you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. Most people, fortunately, don't go all the way down those roads, but it makes the point. The question is, what happens when you worship the Creator God, whose plan to rescue the world and put it right was accomplished by the Lamb who was slain. The answer comes in the second golden rule. Because you are made in God's image, worship makes you more truly human. When you gaze in love and gratitude at the God in whose image you are made, you do indeed grow. You discover more of what it means to become fully alive. And conversely, When you give that same total worship to anything or anyone else, you shrink as a human being. You resemble that which you revere. You become like that which you worship. And so at the heart of becoming more loving people, 
a more loving uh, church, a more loving community, is having uh, the right worship at our centre. Our worship should always have an element of reminding us of what Christ has done for us, of giving us uh, opportunities to reflect and respond to the love that God has shown us. Think of the two sacraments of the church. Uh, baptism. What's baptism about? It's about drowning. It's about dying to self and rising with Christ. What's communion about? It's about uh, remembering uh, the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. What do we do when we uh, gather together for communion? Well, later on, we'll all uh, kneel together at the same uh, altar rail. And the bread and the wine will be uh, given out with words that are designed to remind us of the love of God for us. Words that Jesus gave to his church. This is my body, broken for you. This is my blood, shed for you. In putting worship in its right place, in putting Jesus at the centre of our life together and our uh, life as individuals, in worshipping the Lamb who was slain, we begin a process, a continual process of transformation. Until, as Paul writes, perfection comes. A journey together of becoming more like the people Jesus calls us to be. This is love, writes John in his letter. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for us. As we take an ever-deepening um, apprehension of that truth, take hold of it, meditate upon it, let it dwell within us, so we will find ourselves transformed more and more into the people he calls us to be. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, that you love one another, that you take on my character. In the name of Christ, amen. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love, and do what thou dost do. Let's stand and invite God by his Spirit to change and transform us. Uh, number 67, breathe on me, breath of God. Mm -hmm.